It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, August 29th. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. First up, an entire California report dedicated to the remaking of juvenile justice. The report visits several counties throughout the state to examine the overhaul two decades in the making. Then we head to court with National Native News as the state of Utah sues the Biden administration for restoring the size of two national monuments reduced by former President Donald Trump. We'll take a look at local news and weather before KVMR science correspondent Al Stoller speaks to Malika Bishop and Jackie Johnson from Bluebird Farm in Nevada City. This is the California Report. I'm Madi Bolaños in San Francisco. Over the past two decades, California has completely reimagined its approach to dealing with young people who commit crimes. That remaking of juvenile justice will culminate next summer in the closure of California's troubled state youth prisons, known as the Department of Juvenile Justice, or DJJ. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos takes a look at what counties are doing to prepare for the end of state juvenile lockups. 21-year-old Reed Butler spent about a year in DJJ after his conviction for murdering his abusive stepfather at the age of 16. Today he's sitting, chatting, and working in a large room with the other 10 youths serving time here in El Dorado County's Juvenile Hall. It definitely feels very different. Historically speaking, the Division of Juvenile Justice is very, you could call it a cattle house, like because it prunes and picks these kids to be in the system for the rest of their lives. County Chief Probation Officer Brian Rickard is working hard to build a different culture in this juvenile hall, but he can only work with the tools he's given. So one of the aspects that I don't love about this style of facility is everything is linear. Like it looks linear, it feels linear, it feels institutional, uh, when in fact it really, because of the way the staff conduct themselves, isn't. Linear, as in it looks like a typical prison. Cinder block walls and rows of cells lined up next to one another. Rickart is one of 58 county probation chiefs on the front lines of California's ambitious plan to stop sending teenagers to far-flung state facilities that have long been plagued by gang violence and staff abuse. Instead, youths charged with crimes will stay closer to home and county facilities, where the focus is meant to be on rehabilitation, not just punishment. It's a change prompted by not only a sharp drop in youth crime over the past few decades, but also state laws that limited jail time for young offenders and new research about what actually helps turn kids' lives around. But here in South Lake Tahoe, like in many counties, Ricard is trying to make this shift in an outdated, decades-old building that was designed to look like a prison. And while he's working on plans to build a new juvenile treatment center, he says that's actually not the most important part of this shift. Yes, facilities matter. But what matters tenfold are the staff. If you see somebody in a certain way, you'll tend to treat them that way. And if you tend to treat them that way, they will tend to behave that way. That means staff here act more like social workers than cops. They build trust with the youth. The facility resembles a school more than a prison. And young people here spend little time in their rooms. Instead, they're together going to school or participating in therapy, family visits, or other programs. Historically at DJJ, there could be thousands of young people at any one facility, and a culture of adversarial relationships among staff and the youth themselves. Reed Butler has been inside since 2017. Rickart lobbied to bring him home from DJJ so he could serve his sentence closer to home. He'll be here until he's eligible for release at age 25. 
I think DJJ has tried to do a good job, but it's very difficult when you're sending all of your broken parts to the same place. That factory doesn't have the tools necessary to fix those parts. Those things need to be dealt with on like an individual basis. Butler says he's getting that help here. And he says being able to mentor younger people has helped him grow as well. Rickart concurs, saying Butler's calm presence helps staff reach other kids. But Butler's sentence also represents one of the challenges for counties. State law now allows youth to stay in the juvenile system up to age 26. That means you could have 12- and 13-year-olds serving alongside young adults with incredibly different needs and experiences. Down in San Mateo County, probation leaders are working to create better vocational and educational spaces so that when a 26-year-old is released, they're ready to get a job. So one thing that you'll notice about that's really special about this county is that we have more of a campus feel. Jahan Clark is institution superintendent for the county's probation agency. San Mateo's facility centers around a large courtyard anchored by a lawn and a track. Along the side are garden boxes where youth grow food they then help cook and chickens they take care of. But at this moment, it's empty. So today, it's unique because we're actually having a career fair, a student fair. So they had Skyline College representing this morning, College of San Mateo. But inside the housing unit, like in El Dorado County, things look more like a traditional prison. That is until you enter a large room, painted a soothing blue, and covered in bright renditions of sea creatures. This is what we call the reef. And so this is our multi-sensory um, de-escalation room. So for youth who have more, you know, mental health issues... Um, Maybe they're getting some bad news. They just need to kind of calm themselves, kind of stabilize. This is our room. Clark, who's been working in this field for decades, says this room illustrates the shift in philosophy from one that prioritized the institutionalization of young people. Now, juvenile probation officials are trying to create environments that mimic home life so kids don't have to learn how to act when they're released. Times have changed. Things are a lot different. And so there is no room confinement. You know, if if a youth has an issue, they kind of can take a time out, but then they come right back out. Still, there are worries. The shift has happened quickly. Most of these facilities weren't meant to house young people for years at a time. And for all its problems, DJJ did have expertise treating the small number of incredibly high-needs young people, sex offenders, arsonists. So in Fresno County, Probation Chief Kirk Haynes is creating partnerships with other counties to create those specialized programs. He's retrofitting parts of the facility so they can be used for treatment. But he's frustrated that state leaders are forcing counties to move so quickly. And so we've not had a lot of time and frankly not had a lot of resources to be able to build up you know, to have our facilities ready, to have all these things done. The next big challenge, Haynes says, will be bringing Fresno's youth home from DJJ when it closes next summer. But given, you know, all of the challenges that have come along with it, I think at the end of the day and in the long run, we're ready now and we're going to be even better as the years go by. Under state law, Haynes and others have no choice but to try. They're getting some help from Sacramento. The state budget includes $100 million this year to help make changes to county facilities. For The California Report, I'm Marisa Lagos. Support for The California Report comes from the California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system on the web at chcf.org slash health equity. Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at schmidtocean.org. And that's the California Report for Monday, August 29th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Madi Bolaños. Thanks for listening and have a great day. In 2016, former President Barack Obama established Bears Ears National Monument in southeastern Utah. The following year, former President Donald Trump issued a proclamation reducing the area to less than a sixth of its original size. And in October of 2021, President Biden restored the territory removed by the Trump administration. Now Bears Ears is one of two national monuments caught in a game of political ping-pong once again at the center of debate. National Native News has the details. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Montano in for Antonia Gonzalez. The state of Utah is suing the Biden administration for restoring the size of two national monuments reduced by former President Trump. In a joint statement, Utah's political leaders say the Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monuments are simply too big to be properly managed by the federal government and that they draw unmanageable numbers of visitors. They further allege Biden's move does not comply with the Antiquities Act, which states that land protected by the law should be confined to the smallest area necessary for the care and management of the land. The Hill reports groups allied with the administration argue presidents have historically used the law to protect important landscapes such as the Grand Canyon and that the monuments need to be preserved and protected from threats like oil and gas extraction. The state's attorney general filed the suit on behalf of Governor Spencer Cox and other state officials and the entire congressional delegation. Trump reduced the monuments by more than 2 million combined acres in 2017. Biden then restored the original boundaries a year into his presidency. He referenced tribal rights when restoring the areas, calling Bears Ears a place of healing that is revered and sacred to several tribes. Tribal gaming has rebounded substantially despite the continuing challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic, bringing in a record $39 billion of revenue in 2021. That's according to numbers from the National Indian Gaming Commission. That's up 13% over 2019 and 40% over 2020, marking a record single-year increase. In a press release, NIGC says all areas showed some positive growth since reopening after pandemic-related closures brought on the largest decrease of revenue on record. But the NIGC recognized the industry rebounded strongest on the coasts and that rural tribes are still struggling to get back on their feet. NIGC Chairman Sequoia Simmermeyer says the organization will continue to provide support to struggling tribes, offering training and applying regulatory lessons that have worked in other areas. Tribal gaming accounts for more than 40% of all gaming revenue nationally, which comes to $92 billion total. The Fond du Lac Band of Lake Superior Chippewa are celebrating the return of burial lands. Danielle Kading reports nearly 200 Ojibwe graves were removed from burial grounds on a strip of land in Lake Superior. The tribe settled on the sandbar stretching nearly three miles along Lake Superior as early as 400 years ago. By the mid-19th century, Chief Joseph Osagi was leading a small but thriving community there. But in 1918, Osagi descendant and Superior native Lori Madden says the community and the remains of her ancestors were wrongfully removed. They took 198 graves and they moved them by scow down the Namaji River to St. Francis Cemetery. 
The remains were reburied elsewhere to make way for U.S. Steel's plans to put up ore docks that were never built, and the removal was paid for with federal funds intended to benefit tribal members. Now the city of Superior has returned the tribe's sacred burial sites. Fond du Lac tribal chairman Kevin Dupie searched for words to capture the feeling of the moment. I just want to go in the woods. I think I should be at Wisconsin Point right now or St. Francis Cemetery telling him what we did. Now, Doopy says their people can finally be left to rest. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Kading. The last member of an uncontacted indigenous group in Brazil has died. Authorities found his body in a hammock outside a straw hut. Officials say it appears he died of natural causes. The BBC reports the man's name is not known, but outsiders refer to him as the man of the hole because he was known to dig large holes to hide in or to capture animals. He had not been contacted by outsiders for nearly three decades, but officials monitored his whereabouts for his own safety. He was the last of a group whose other six remaining members were killed in 1995, presumably by ranchers, miners, or loggers wanting to expand their land. For National Native News, I'm Daniel Montano. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at today's regional news. Around 4 a.m. this morning, a construction crew struck a large diameter gas line in front of 116 Mill Street in downtown Grass Valley, according to Catherine Dykes, senior civil engineer for the city of Grass Valley. PG&E arrived at 6.10 a.m., clamped the line off on both sides of the breach, and had the gas shut off by 7.10 a.m. The repair was completed by PG&E by 8 a.m., and downtown Grass Valley businesses were able to open by 10.30 a.m. According to the Grass Valley Police Department's Facebook page, this morning beginning around 10 a.m., three juveniles left Nevada Union High School and began causing issues with neighboring businesses. According to one report, one of the juveniles may have brandished a weapon at a business employee. The social media post continues, quote, In an abundance of caution, we advised the high school and superintendent's office of the reports, and the decision was made for the students to shelter in place during their lunch break. A safety alert update from Nevada County Superintendent of Schools Scott Lay said as of 1 p.m., Nevada Union High School's shelter-in-place had been lifted. The three involved juveniles were found still off-campus, at which time normal operations returned for the affected schools. Grass Valley PD made contact with the juvenile suspects and determined there was no threat to students or staff. A traditional bell ringing for the passing of Grass Valley firefighter Trenton Damley will take place at the Race Street Fire Station on Tuesday, August 30th at 10 a.m. Firefighters from Grass Valley, Nevada County Consolidated, Orville, Rockland, Davis, and other fire departments will be present along with family and friends. Trenton passed away on July 7th. In a press release about the ceremony, the City of Grass Valley Fire Department says, quote, Trenton was an integral member of the Grass Valley Fire Department. 
His esprit de corps and professionalism exemplified his commitment to the city of Grass Valley and his fellow firefighters. He will forever have a special place in our department, end quote. Residents of the Pairdale Chicago Park Fire Protection District will soon receive a fire suppression benefit assessment ballot in the mail. In a public notice, Fire Chief James Beerwagon says, Revenue generated by the assessment will be used to fund additional full-time firefighters, to provide 24-hour coverage in the district and additional seasonal firefighters to bolster daytime coverage. The ballot asks homeowners to vote on a $236.42 per year increase in their property taxes. Engineering firm Harris & Associates were hired to mail ballots and count the results. Ballots must be returned by November 10th and will be counted at the board meeting that evening, which the public can attend. Turning our attention to your local weather and air quality index. Hot weather gradually builds this week, peaking over the Labor Day weekend. The National Weather Service has issued an excessive heat watch beginning Saturday, September 3rd, through Monday, September 5th, for the Sacramento Valley and foothills, including the Grass Valley, Nevada City area. Dangerously hot conditions could see temperatures up to 112 degrees. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 65. Tuesday, sunny skies with a high near 92. Current air quality is satisfactory with an AQI of 13. At this time, air pollution poses little or no risk with 24 hours of exposure. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 51. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 85. Current air quality is satisfactory with an AQI of 9. The National Weather Service has issued a special weather statement for the Truckee Tahoe region. Isolated showers and thunderstorms are possible this evening. The biggest concerns for this weather are new fire starts from dry lightning strikes and strong winds. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight clear with a low around 61. Tuesday sunny with a high near 95. Current air quality is acceptable with an AQI of 58. However, there may be a risk for some people with 24 hours of exposure, particularly those who are unusually sensitive to air pollution. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Several farm tours are happening over the next week. KVMR science correspondent Al Stoller speaks with Malika Bishop and Jackie Johnson about growing flowers at Bluebird Farm in Nevada City. Malika, I've walked on to plenty of farms. This is the first time that instead of being greeted by a row of squash and a row of melons, I was greeted by a row of zinnias and a row of sunflowers. It was really delightful. Do insects go after flowers the way they go after fruit and vegetables? We have insects with flowers just as much as we do with vegetables, maybe even more this year. What do you do when the bugs show up? Beneficial insects, ideally releasing them weekly so that you'll have a new generation that's going to kind of keep up. Jackie, how do you know when to pick the flowers? You want to get them earlier in the day when they're stronger looking. They're not going through the sun and the heat of the day. When you harvest them, they might not last as long or not be as strong. Certain things like sunflowers want to be picked when they're not open yet. So otherwise, they just won't last as long. Yarrow, if you pick that when it's not fully open, it will wilt immediately. Poppies in the spring 
you pick them when they're just in their pod and the pod's starting to open and you see just that little bit of color, that's when you want to pick a poppy. You burn the ends of the stem and that helps them hold up and keeps petals from falling off for a few days. What is the anatomy of bouquet that you need different flowers for different reasons? We try to always have what we would call filler flowers, more neutral tones, background kind of palettes, maybe a little more bushy to fill in space. And then some textural elements that might be like something that's long and tall that kind of gives it a different shape and texture. Then we'll have our focal flowers, which would be the things like big and full of color, dahlias or zinnias. And then we might have smaller, similar toned flowers to fill in the gaps. We have right now some nice little mums that are little flowers that aren't super showy, but might tie into the color palette nicely, have a yellow center and a white outside. So that ties in with a yellow flower and another white flower and kind of pulls it together. We're always kind of looking at texture and space and color palettes. Do you make different type of bouquets for different occasions? We have a flower CSA. CSA stands for? Community Supported Agriculture. People pay up front at the beginning of the season to get a bouquet every week for the whole season. Those bouquets get kind of the cream of the crop, the bigger, more elaborate bouquets, and then we'll do kind of lower priced, smaller bouquets for grocery stores. You are having a farm tour in the very near future. Where and when? We are actually having two farm tours in the very near future. One is on Thursday the 1st at the Woolman site of Bluebird Farm. That's from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. and that is being put on by Sierra Harvest and people can purchase tickets on the Sierra Harvest website for that. And that's also a picnic. So you can come, take a tour of the farm and have a picnic. And then the following Saturday, the third, from nine to 11 a.m., we're having a farm tour and you pick of our flower farm site. That one's put on by the Greater Cement Hill Neighborhood Association in collaboration with Acorn School of Herbal Medicine and we'll be touring their farm. So we have a half acre at the Jacobson Dude Ranch that is our flower farm and the other half acre of is the Acorn School of Herbal Medicine's herb site. If people want more information, what's the website? For the flower farm tour, it's Greater Cement Hill Neighborhood Association. For the vegetable farm at Woolman, it's sierraharvest.org. It's been really good talking with you both. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alan. All right. Thank you. I was speaking with Malika Bishop and Jackie Johnson of Bluebird Farm. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for this Monday, August 29th. Visit us online at kvmr.org and on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR appreciates support from listeners like you. 
Keep it tuned to your community radio station. Coming up at 6.30, it's the Women's International News Gathering Service, WINGS. On this episode of WINGS, a recent edition of the Australian program, Accent of Women, where host Giselle Hanna takes on the topic of apostasy, the act of changing or abandoning one's religion, with her guest, Sadia Hamid. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News. Thank you.